Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Earlier this fall, the Trump administration announced that the U.S. would accept no more than 18,000 refugees in the coming fiscal year. I'm going to read from Christianity Today's report on this. President Trump's administration has dramatically cut the number of refugees admitted to the U.S. every year since taking office. Last year, CT reported on evangelicals condemning the decision to drop the refugee ceiling to the then-historic low of 30,000 for the 2019 fiscal year. The year before, it was down to 45,000. Up until then, the cap for resettling refugees in the U.S. hadn't gone gone below 70,000 refugees in 30 years. While in many years, the U.S. has frequently accepted more refugees than other countries, the number has almost always been a tiny fraction of its overall population. Meanwhile, Jordan, a country of just other under 10 million, is currently home more than 700,000 refugees. Quick to Listen has heard from Christians advocating for and working with refugees in the U.S. This week, we wanted to learn more about what it looks like to work with refugees in Jordan. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Mark Galley, editor-in-chief. All right, Mark, I'm just curious, you know, we've talked about refugees so much on the show. I'd specifically love to hear how you feel about how many refugees and asylum seekers that Jordan has received. It's just amazing to me. One of the reasons I'm looking forward to this podcast is to discern what that looks and feels like on the ground. As you've known, and as I've said on other occasions, it's just stunning to me that the United States overall doesn't seem to have the imagination to consider that it can welcome a lot more refugees than it's been welcoming. And this has been a trend for some time. It started in the Obama administration. And I remember when Obama lowered the number of refugees, I think, to below 90,000. I wrote this bitter editorial denouncing him for doing that. Now I would kiss him for doing that. (laughs) So it has been a long-term trend, and it's really gotten dramatic in the Trump administration. And there are many reasons why you do want to control your borders. I get it. And why you don't want to have too many people at any one given time. I get it. Yeah, it puts tremendous burdens on local communities. But it does strike me if a country like Jordan can welcome seven, almost three quarters of a million refugees, the U.S. can do better than 18,000. My reaction to all of this is that when refugees are coming to the U.S., as we've talked about extensively on the show, the amount of vetting that they have to go through is really significant. The refugees that are going to Jordan, however, are not people who have been vetted in the same category. These are people who are coming over from Syria and are setting up camps. They just show up. They're just showing up. For better or for worse, and we'll probably talk about this in our discussion today, they are not necessarily moving into the cities. A lot of them are out in camps, living off the supplies that the UN has for them. Or in this case, I'm sure our guest will talk more about what local efforts look like. But it's it's a different system. And the strain on all of this type of stuff is extremely significant, as you can imagine. Yeah, it's just really interesting about what happens when you just happen to be that neighbor that's available in that particular instance. And 
the ways that you do and do not rise. Obviously, many of the people that end up getting settled in other parts of the world that are Syrian did come through Jordan. And so in some ways, it's not necessarily just the U.S. when they're refusing to take as many refugees that it's hurting just those people that are there. It's putting pressure on like allies that we have and Jordan being one of them. Right. And I would agree that the situation is more complex. And I do actually agree that with our vetting process, it's very thorough. But there's no reason we couldn't afford to put three or four times as many vetters on the job than we are doing right now. So that's that's kind of so I think it will always be slow and for good reason. Overall, I think we could do. Yeah, I've said it before. I won't repeat myself. All right. So who's our guest today? Our guest is Father Khalil Jaar, the priest, St. Mary's Catholic Church in Marka, Jordan, where he has been ministering to hundreds, if not thousands, of Iraqi and Syrian refugees for many years now. His work has been recognized in Newsweek, the Times of Israel, and NPR, among other outlets. He has been commissioned by Pope Francis to travel to places like Colombia, Mexico, and the United States to encourage others who are doing similar refugee work. Welcome, Father Jahar. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for giving me this opportunity to, to talk to you, to talk to dear friends, the people of the United States of America. First of all, I would like to thank our friends, our benefactors, so many NGOs helping us to serve and to take care for our brothers, the refugees. Just to give you an idea about how many refugees I have in my parish. In my parish, I have 800 Iraqi families, no less than 300 families Syrian from Syria. We are doing our best to serve them and to protect them and to assure the right of education for the kids. Because usually in such situation, usually the first victim, the mothers and the children. That's why I do my best to protect the right of the children to the education. That's why we have a school, especially for the refugees' children. And I have 250 kids uh, we give them catechism, English, Arabic, Aramaic, science, history. We provide for them the uniform, uh, books, the, everything they need. Even we, we provide for them the transportation to encourage them to come to our school. We are doing our best as well to, to provide food voucher for the families. And here I will tell you something very important. The Iraqi refugees in Jordan are not allowed to work. So can you imagine they came as refugees almost with nothing. In 24 hours, they were obliged to leave their country, their house, and to come to to Jordan. So they arrived almost with nothing. They are not allowed to work. Almost nobody helped them. All the help are going to the Syrian refugees. But for the Iraqis, almost nothing. That's why I feel that I am obliged to provide for them food and shelter. I do thank World Vision, for example, for one of our excellent friends and benefactors, because with their help and their generosity, I am quite sure that they made a big difference in the life of these our brothers, the refugees. That's a great overview of what you're doing. Thank you very much. It's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, I was wondering if maybe you could share with our listeners a little bit about your own life. Where is your family from and where did you grow up? I was born in Bethlehem in 1953 and I am priest in Jerusalem, in the Diocese of Jerusalem since 43 years. Me and my family, we are 
we are always uh, being refugees. That's why I am very close to my brothers, the refugees in my parish, because myself, I do suffer to be refugees as well. Since 43 years, I am serving people of Jordan, my, my parish, and the refugees coming from Syria and from Iraq in Jordan. Let me tell you that uh, in 2006, as I was traveling between Baghdad and Jordan, helping and risk to make rescue for uh, kids and to bring them to the hospital of, of Amman, they kidnapped me for one week. I don't know who, but uh, thanks to the Lord, after one week, they released me. This, wow. uh, this was very hard for me. I do still suffering from for this one week. Thanks to the Lord. Now I am. I feel myself a privileged person to serve such good people, our brothers, the refugees. As I say all the time, I am privileged because I am serving the living saints of our time. These people who came here looking for shelter and refuge in Jordan. They are our brothers. They are the saints of this century. I have to tell you that uh, we do. We are very grateful to our King Abdullah and his government because they allowed so easy to these uh, refugees to come in Jordan and to have a secure place. When you said that 2006, you had been kidnapped. And I was just wondering, where were you said you were traveling in Iraq at that time when that happened? Yes. In that time, we, we used an air serve uh, company that make the service between Amman and Baghdad. I was traveling from Amman to Baghdad. When I reached the airport of Baghdad, usually the station of the, or, or the parking used to be one or two kilometers far away from the airport. And there we have to wait for someone or for our people to come and to pick up to the, to the city. When I reached there, a car for UN came and took four of the travel uh, of the people with us, and I remained alone in the parking. I do remember an American soldier told me, "Father, you can't stay here anymore. This is a military zone, so you have to move immediately." I told him, "But how can I do? I go to Baghdad if the chauffeur didn't come?" Then a small car with three young people approached me and said. Do you have somebody to take you to the city? He said, no. Okay, we can take you. I went with them. We passed the first checkpoint, the second checkpoint. And then when we start the autostrade to the city, they kidnapped me. They put something on my head. This was the last moment I realized what's going on. They kidnapped me for, I think, seven or ten days. I can't remember because the, my eyes used to be closed. I passed a very very sad moment with them. How did someone find you? The last day, they told me that the emir of this group will come and to make a judgment for me. So he started asking me, what is your name? What is your father's name, mother's name? Who sent you to Iraq? What is your mission? I told him, believe me, I have nothing to, to do with, the, with such problems. I am not politician. I am not. I am a simple man who come to rescue children from Iraq to Jordan. And here is the ticket for me and for the two kids I am coming to, to take them from the hospital. If you don't believe me, send someone to ask St. Raphael Hospital in Baghdad if they are waiting for somebody calling call Father Khalid. If they said no, I am between you, your hands, you can do whatever you need. 
But if I am sincerely telling you why I am here, please help me to continue this humanitarian help. The day after they put me in a car and they throw me in a desertic place and I don't know who took me to the hospital. I don't know. I don't remember anything from this moment. But I do know that I passed all this time crying as a child, as a child. It was really very hard. Were you angry at God after that happened? No, but I can tell you that during this time, I was unable to pray. Can you imagine that? Because I forget everything. I was crying all the time. The only prayer that I do remember, I said to my Lord, my Lord, if I am here in Baghdad in this situation, it's because of you. It's because of you. It's because of your love. So you have the obligation to take me out. And I promise you, if I go safe to my country, all my life will be for you, serving you and your people. No, I am not, I am not angry with the Lord, but I, because he, he was all the time with me. And because of him, I am now safe in, in my parish. Yeah, and it seems like many people also face the threat of kidnapping, too, when you guys are driving around or getting through different countries in there. It's really very sad. I can tell you that it was an experience for me to feel that the Lord is taking care for us in every moment. At what, in what year did refugees start to arrive in Jordan? They start to, to come to Jordan after the first crisis of the Gulf, and that's mean in 1990. But the big wave of refugees arrived in Jordan in 2014 when ISIS took the control of Mosul in Iraq. We received 12,000 families in, in one month. Wow. Yes. This is a big number. So these people began to show up. These were all the Iraqi or they were also Syrian too? No, the Iraqi start, the big wave of refugees arrived in 2014. Since the beginning of the crisis in Syria, we, we receive refugees from Syria, from the southern border of Syria with Jordan. And do you work at one of the camps itself? Yes, I work in uh, Zatari camp, the biggest refugee camp in Jordan. So people cross the border, they come to the camp, and what happens after they arrive at the camp? Some of them are received usually from UNHCR in the, in the camp. Much people don't live in the camp. They live for their own in the cities of Jordan. And I think these people, these refugees living outside the, the camp, the most vulnerable, vulnerable people uh, between the refugees. Because there is nobody to take care for them. Nobody gives them health care or food or so this kind of refugees i do my best to to follow them and to assist them your church saint mary's is in a camp or it's in a city or in no, a town in the city of amman in okay. the city of amman but usually we make visit from our va church to the camp of zatari okay so you minister to some of these refugees who live in the city then also yes yes okay and these are i assume they're all catholics are the majority Iraqis and Syrians coming over are Catholics? When I am working in a human relief service, I am sorry to tell you that for me, I am serving people who are suffering. I don't care about their religion. I have a lot of people, Christian, Muslim, Yazidi, and 
working with the refugees, I can't make any difference between between their faith. But the ones that are in your church are Catholic then at that point, no? Yes, yes. In, okay. in my church, we serve, can tell you that uh, many of the Muslims, because they feel that they are respected, they come to our church and I feel that they are very happy to come and ask for some So how does the church have enough funds to help all of these families and to organize this school that you told us about? First of all, I have to tell you that we are working and helping all this because of the providence. And let me that means all these friends, good people, our friends in the States, our friends in Europe, they do visit us and they do know know about our work. Their donation is a big blessing for us. And thanks the Lord, everything is going well with the small that we have, but with the blessing of the Lord, I can assure you that everything is going smoothly and good. So we talked about earlier how in the United States, our government does not want refugees at this moment. How does the Jordanian government feel about the number of refugees? We we are obliged to say thank you, dear our King Abdullah and his government, because really they are very nice with us when we ask any favor for the refugees. Jordan, in spite that our resources is very, very limited, Jordan did a big relief service for the refugees. How do average Jordanians feel about the number of refugees? Are they overwhelmed? Are they tired? Are they still happy to help people? All of them, all of us, we are tired because really we have so many things to do, but we don't have enough resources. But even we continue to to support these people because really they are in a very bad situation. I can tell you so many stories about the situation of these poor families. Actually, why don't you tell us the situation of one or two families that you know? For example, I will, I will uh, tell you one day, a, a girl in our uh, school for refugees, she fallen down on, on earth. The teacher called me. We tried to rescue her and to, 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 to see what's going on. When she started to talk, I asked her, tell me, what did you eat? She said, nothing. I didn't eat. I told her, why you come to the school without eating? You have to eat then to come to the school. She looked to me and I will never, ever forget this girl when she looked to me and she said, Father, today is not my turn to eat. Did what? What? What does that mean? When I took her to, to her family, to her uh, house and I talked to her mother, I found a mother with four kids and the father was killed in Iraq. So I asked her, how did you manage to support your four children? She said, Father, we depend on the charity of our neighbors. We don't have enough food for them. That's why I give food to my kids one by one. In my school, I can see that most of the kids, the Iraqi refugees, most of them, are their nutrition is very, very bad. They don't have enough food to eat. And do the camps give out food to them, or are these families that live in the city? In the camp, UNHCR provide everything for the refugees, healthcare, education, food, even even for the refugees, for the Syrian refugees living in the city, they have as a visa. Monthly, they can, from ATM, take their pocket money. The, the Syrians are very well assisted. They have the permission to work in the market of Jordan, but the Iraqi, they are not allowed to work. 
And why is that? I don't know why. I think this is a, an agreement between the government. But I know that this is not, they don't have the permission to work. And this woman that you met and her family, they lived in the city? Yeah, they live close to our church. So they, they didn't, they weren't at the camp where they could get free food then? But now they cannot go to the, to the camp. So I know that you talked to different American Christians because it said that Pope Francis had sent you around to different places. What do you think that American Christians don't always understand about the refugee situation in Jordan? The friends who come to visit us, they realize immediately the urgent need for these people to be assisted, to be helped. I can tell you that we are very happy when we, we hear that the Australian embassy invites from time to time some families to travel to Australia, to Canada and to the United States is not permitted. This is really very sad. And let me tell you something. The Iraqi refugees, especially the Iraqi refugees, they are very qualified people, very qualified people. Among them, we have doctors, we have pharmaceuticals, we have dentists, we have teachers, we have engineers. Since four years, they are stuck in Amman, in Jordan, and they are suffering a very, very critical situation. I would chime in with that. My, my wife works with refugees here in the United States, and she says the Iraqis are extremely talented and well-educated, come with many more advantages than a lot of refugees do. And they can be integrated to the society very easily. Yes. Yeah, that has been her experience as well. Where do most of the people in the refugee camp, where do they wish they could go eventually? Canada, United States? Anywhere, especially to the States or to Australia, because Europe is also closed for them. Do the people that you talk to have hope or are they pretty depressed? All of them are depressed. That's why I feel my job is to support them, to give them hope and to wait until the Lord give us some some solution. You said that you have some people come and visit and then other people come and, and, and give donations. Is there a I assume that you have programs for people to do that? Can people come and volunteer at your place and Yes, yes. For the time being, I have some volunteers working with me. They are they are coming from Spain. For example, in March this year, a friend of mine, he is a doctor from from Seattle, from America. He came with his wife and with his two kids. He spent one month with us, assisting people in our clinic. But he doesn't speak the local language, or he does. No, he he speaks only English. But we have a translator with him to help people to express what they need. Yeah, well, this reminds me of an editorial I wrote, which there's one finger pointing outward and three fingers pointing back. I had said early on in the Trump administration when the refugee numbers were were dropping dramatically that this doesn't mean that Christians can't be involved in refugee work. They might have to go somewhere to do it, or they might have to give money to someone else to do it, but they could still do it. No no government official can prevent you from doing refugee work. <laughs> yes, it, so. this is true. Father, what is the hardest part of your work for you? The hardest work for me is when we. I feel that we, I have to give people food to eat, and I don't have the possibility. This is really very, very sad when someone comes to, to ask for food or to, to pay the rent of their house. And what kind of house? One or two rooms in a very bad situation. And now we will start the winter in, in Jordan. The winter is very, very cold. And this is very hard time for 
many refugees in Jordan. So people will come to your church and ask for money? Ask for money, ask for food, ask for, for example, they need some uh, operation to the hospital. Their demand is very high, but we don't have the possibility to afford all these needs. For me, the hardest moment of my life with them. So what gives you comfort in your work or hope? What is there particular scriptural passages that you lean on or a teaching of the church? I try to, to to talk to my brothers, to my friends, to ask them. The Lord will provide. I trust the Lord that he will provide whatever we need. For example, my, my bishop always asked me, how can you manage to assist all these people in your parish? <laughs> he he makes the same question that you did right now. If you go to the book of Proverbs in the Holy Bible, the sh- chapter 13, verse 7. You know what he, he said? I, because I found the answer in this in this page. He said, Lord, before I die, I will ask you for two things. Don't give me too much money, because if you give me too much money, perhaps I will say, who is the Lord? I don't need him. And don't g- uh, give me too much poverty, because to be very poor, I can say, where is the Lord? He, he forget me. So give me our daily bread. And this is our, uh, this is always our daily prayer. Lord, take us for us, take care for us, give us exactly what we need. And you know why? Because if we, were, if we have too much, it could be the temptation of the corruption. And if we don't have too much, it could be, Lord, why you forget us? But for the time being, and until this moment, I can assure you that the Lord always provides exactly what we need. Talked about God providing for you. I was wondering if you could share a story with us about how God provided for you recently. Last year, in last October, we had in Jordan here a storm of dust storm. And the dust storm in Jordan, in the Arab country or in the Middle East, is very, very dangerous, you know. That's why the government gave order to close universities, school, everything for two days. During this storm, I was in the hospital for a small operation of hernia. One of our uh, volunteers in the church called me and he said, Father, you are absent since, since two or three days, but we are in a very bad situation. We don't have food to, to give to the people because in the beginning we had more than 200 families living within the church. So I told him, go to the market and try to buy anything you can find. Yes, Father, but we don't have money to pay. I said, okay, you ask the food and you tell them that two days the Father will come back from the hospital. He said, no, we cannot do that. So I said, okay, give me five minutes to think what we can do. In the hospital I was. And my prayer, as usually, I pray to the Lord as I am talking to my dear friend. And I told the Lord, my Lord, you asked me to do my duty, but now you know that I am in the hospital. I think it is your time to do your duty. These people are your children before they are mine. So please do something. After less than half an hour, I, I received a phone call from, I don't know who, he told me, hello, Father Khalil speaking. I said, yes. Father, do you have still uh, some refugees coming from Iraq? I said, yes, sir. My tone was very tough. I was thinking that he wants to, to send more people to my parish. <laughs> I said, yes, well, how can I uh, serve you? He said, Father, you know, 
I am talking to you on behalf of Rotary Club in Jordan. I said, yes, what do you need? He said, we have a plan for an open area uh, festival. We have everything ready. But because of the storm, we canceled everything. The food is already in the, uh, in the hotel and paid. Can we send the food to your church? <laughs> my Lord, my Lord. So, give me please the address. I give him the address and the telephone number to contact the people in the church. After an hour, they called me from the church and he, they said, Father, what is this? Because what happened? They said, the catering car of the Marriott Hotel came and he gave us 52 full of fish, talomon, uh, chicken, all kind of food. Can you imagine when Marriott prepares some food, <laughs> what kind of food it could be? <laughs> this happened with us. For me, this is a miracle. That's why immediately I made a small prayer to the Lord. I told my Lord, please forgive me for being so bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's why when I tell you that the providence, yes, we are living with the providence of the Lord. The Lord, I feel his hand with us day by day. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. You're in charge of a parish, and I know sacramental life is really important to the Roman Catholic faith. Do you have morning, you have daily morning mass? Do you? Yeah, sure, have, sure. We so have how are, daily, I assume you have other, other priests helping you with all that responsibility? Uh, no, but I have many, many, many people helping me in my work. Many volunteers from my parish and from my quarter where we live. But you have to preside at all the masses, correct? I have one mass in the morning. But each morning? Each morning, yes. On Sunday, in, on Sunday, I have three masses. One in Arabic, one in, in Chaldean for the Chaldean people, and one in, for the Syriac community. I wanted to ask that question to give context, because in other words, you're, you're faithfully ministering to your parish as a priest, and you are going to the camps and helping people. We're not Catholics, so I think that's quite extraordinary. I am doing my best to assist the people, my brothers in humanity, before any other thing. I think the the most important religion religion is to be human being first, because if I am Catholic and I don't have human feelings, there is something missed in my faith. That's why, as we are all human beings, I have to love and to serve everyone who are in need of help. I have a question for you about the Christians that you work with. Do these Christians ever experience persecution when they come to Jordan? No. In Jordan, we are living very good. Thanks the Lord and thanks to the Hashemite family. For the time being in Jordan, we, the Christians, we are living very, very good. Believe me, I am very sincere with you. Yes, uh, especially compared to some of Jordan's neighbors. 
in Iraq, in Syria, you can imagine whatever you, you can imagine. Okay. But in Jordan, I am talking about the country where I am living. Really, we are, you know how much we are the Christian in Jordan? No, tell me. We are 1%. Wow. Tiny. Yes. Yes. 1%. But I can assure you that we are very well respected protected, and we have all our rights. Father, how would you like our listeners to pray for you and your work? Uh, please, please do, because really we are. We need your prayer. We need, you, we need your prayer because your prayer support us, give us uh, enough strength to continue our work of charity and human service to our brothers. Is there anything in particular that people should pray for? Pray for me, so may the Lord give me enough strength to continue my mission of charity and testimony for my Lord. I think that this is the best way to live our faith. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. I really appreciate you sharing your story with everyone. For people who have feedback for us on the show, you can go on Twitter. We're at CT Podcast. You can also send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. I would like to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by people that subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. We are currently in the middle of our November issue examining some of the top articles that we think that you should check out and that you're missing out by not becoming a subscriber to CT for those of you that have held out. Mark, is there an article that you think will definitely convert people to becoming subscribers this week? One of the reasons people subscribe to our podcast is because they're interested in what you think, Morgan, and what I think. So I would be remiss if I didn't have them note that I did write the editorial for the November issue. The hook for the story is Jerry Falwell's leadership at Liberty University. And I use that as a way to talk about how we conceive of leadership today in the church, both in parachurch higher ed, and pastors, how we've become more business-oriented than gospel-oriented to our detriment. I will say it's already been posted online, and it's gotten a couple of critiques, but a couple of praises as well, which means it will give something for people to think about. But that's the sort of thing we try to do in CT every month, prod people's thinking to take their discipleship deeper. One thing that I would like to flag in that piece is that, in particular, you're talking about kind of the way that we look at successful leadership in general in the church and how we began adopting not just like, oh, these are nice criteria, but when we adopt a more business type mentality, our criteria for what is a good leader can also change. As I think you mentioned later on in the piece, you know, when we're, again, we're looking for people to bear a particular type of fruit. (laughs) And sometimes if it's just through a, a business lens, then we end up missing all these other different ways that God is actually calling us to do leadership. Right. And, you know, it's clear, especially if it's a complex organization like CT or World Vision or there's lots of big organizations, you do need a leader who understands business and understands organizational life. No question about it. But when that becomes the preeminent qualification of your leader, it's it doesn't do well for the organization in the long run. All right. So people who want to read that article can go to orderct.com slash podcast. That's orderct.com. And you can read that article in our November issue, whether it's online or in actual physical copy. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone can share something that has brought them joy recently. And Mark, I was wondering if you could go first and share something that has brought you joy. One new joy I'm getting in my life is playing a computer game with my grandson via long distance. And we hadn't played for a few weeks. And after he left church, he starts plugging me with email messages from his dad's account. (laughs) 
and I was in the middle of something I was really anxious to get done, and I thought, but I won't have that many opportunities to do this, so I better do it. And it was just a good, as I've mentioned before, just it's just a good time to be a grandpa in life because you can enjoy fellowship and fun with your kids when they're a thousand miles away. How old is your grandson? He's seven. That's awesome. And uh, I uh, publish a newsletter called The Galley Report. It comes out weekly on Fridays. It's spelled G-A-L-L-I Report. And you can find it by going to ChristianityToday.com slash The Galley Report. Father, is there something that has brought you joy or made you happy in the past week? Just I want to to thank you. And uh, through uh, this uh, emission, I would like to say thank you to all our friends who support our charitable work. Are you sure there's no kids? Do you ever hang out with kids at your church? Yes, I have too much. <laughs> many, many kids in my church. Can you tell us about your favorite kid? As you know, we have the school for the refugees where we have 250 kids on Sunday Bible study with the kids after the Mass. They are all the time here. Uh, in the afternoon, we open the, the playground for the kids to come and to play in order to protect them from the street. Because as you know, in our country, we don't have enough space for the kids to play. So we open the door of our church. In front of the church, they can play and they can be safe. Do you play with them? Sure. <laughs> this is... This is my time to, to relax. <laughs> I, I can see them now playing soccer or football. Football and volleyball, basketball. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Wait, do you win all the time when you play them? <laughs> no, sometimes we, we lose. <laughs> or to, to give them the opportunity to see that I lose from time to time. Okay. <laughs> so how do they how can people get to know more about your work and vo- and volunteer and send send donations? My email is carlos at orange.jo. This is my email. Carlos C A R L O S at orange.jo. Then you can follow us on our Facebook M A R K R A Marca School for refugees. I will post a link to that on our website as well. So you can follow us on uh, all our activities and our work. My precious moment this week, I think it, this I've had similar precious moments before, but I really enjoyed getting to eat dinner with really good friends this week. Basically, for the past two years, I have a group of friends that I've been eating a lot of Sunday night dinners with them. And it's one of my favorite ways to start the week is to make food and eat it with friends and have good conversation. And it's really nice to be in people's homes. I did go out for Chinese food on Saturday night too, which was also delicious. And I love the food that we got. But it's really just great to have extended time to talk to people and to get to know them over food. And I'm really grateful that we have that chance to do that. All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by Sweeps. You can find this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you end up listening to podcasts. But if you go to Apple Podcasts, if you want to rate and review the show there, that would be great. We will see you all next week. Bye.